0: Great to be with you all this morning, and as Ian says, really nice to be able to say this morning as well. Um, Also, my hay fever is like streaming from yesterday, so hopefully I'll get through the next half an hour without multiple minnows, so we'll see. No justice, no peace. This is a slogan used frequently in summer 2020 um, by the Black Lives Matter movement after the murder of George Floyd. And they're making this point, how can we have peace? How can we pursue Peace if we don't have justice they're saying if you don't fight injustice then don't bother talking about peace and they're right about that there can be no peace without justice and today as we continue our series in 2 Samuel we see that it's not just the absence of justice that stops peace but there are many things that can prevent true peace and it'll leave us asking can we have true peace and if so who will bring that true peace? Today we're looking at chapters 18 to 19 in 2 Samuel, so to please do flick those open. And we see that David is in the midst of a civil war. His son Absalom has rebelled against him, taking 10 tribes of Israel with him. The two tribes of Judah have remained with David, and we see at the start of chapter 18, David sending his troops to battle to defeat Absalom's rebellion. Let me read verses 6 to 18 of chapter 18 now. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel. And the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There, Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. When one of the men saw what happened, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who had told him this, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have had to give you ten shekels of silver in a warrior's belt. But the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Joab said, I am not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet, and the troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a power and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself, for he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the power after himself, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Absalom's death is rather bizarre. He's riding on a mule and his hair gets tangled in the branches of a tree and he's suspended in midair. And as he hangs from the tree, David's military commander, Joab, disobeys the king's command and orders the death of Absalom. Now the fact Absalom's hair gets caught in a tree might just sound like a quirky detail to give the narrative a bit of flourish. But it's actually a really significant detail because Absalom took great pride in his appearance. 2 Samuel 14 verse 25 says, In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. And the crown in Absalom's appearance was his hair. For this battle, he should have shaved off some of his long flowing hair for battle. It wasn't practical to go to battle with his hair. But he cared far too much about his appearance. He loved the fact that he was the most handsome man in the land. And we see more evidence of that in verse 18 of chapter 18, don't we? Because he built a monument to himself. It was his pride, not bad luck, that led to his death. Absalom didn't hang from a tree by pure chance, but because he was proud. And we see pride throughout his whole life as well. It was pride that led him to murdering Amnon. It was pride that led him to rebel against David. And it was his pride that meant he hung from a tree. And Absalom, he was always going to die. Because in verse 14 of chapter 17, it says, The Lord determined to frustrate the good advice of Athopothel in order to bring, on, bring disaster on Absalom. It's not bad luck. It's God's sovereignty in action. God in his sovereignty was never going to let Absalom get away with his prideful ways. And that's why James 4 verse 6 says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride is dangerous. And God opposes the proud. And our pride might not look like Absalom's at first glance, but at a deeper level, there is the same issue. Pride is putting ourselves before God. And we need to ask ourselves do we care more about our own glory or His glory? Do you care more about your own glory or God's glory? Tomorrow morning, when you wake up, it's another Monday and you face another week. Will you do what suits you best? Or will you do what is best for you by obeying God? Will you care more about God's opinion and God's desires or your own? And being proud is so easy, isn't it? I certainly struggle with it every day. And the thing with pride is that we need to remember it does not fulfil our greatest needs and desires. The Irish poet Thomas Moore puts it so well. So sleeps the pride of former days. So glory's thrill is over. And hearts that once beat high for praise... Now feel that pulse no more. Having our pride fed, our ego massaged, does not satisfy us. If we live for the praise of men, all that will bring is death. The glory of others' affection is fleeting. So let's humbly worship the one who can give us life, the one who is eternally glorious. Absalom's pride caused his death. But ironically, his death brought an end to the Civil War. His death actually brought peace albeit a very chaotic peace. There had been hope that Absalom could be the two Samuel seven king, that he could be the descendant of David that would sit on the throne of a kingdom that lasts forever. Israel had hoped that Absalom could bring them that peace and prosperity they so desperately desired. And you can understand why, uh, because Absalom's name means father of peace. But tragically, he couldn't bring peace through his life. All he could do was bring a chaotic peace through his deserved death. So who can bring true and lasting peace? Absalom's death is a cursed death. It says in Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And the only way we could ever see true peace is if the curse of death was reversed. And Jesus did that on the cross. And let me read how Paul references that verse from Deuteronomy in his letter to the Galatians in chapter 3, Verse 13. Christ redeemed the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus didn't deserve to die. But he hung on a tree, reversing the curse of death to bring the blessing of life and true peace. In this civil war in Israel, there was no peace without Absalom's death. For us too, there is no peace without death, the death of Christ. It was Jesus' humble obedience to his Father that led him to the cross. And it's because of his sacrifice that our sins can be forgiven so that we can have the most important peace of all, reconciliation between us and God. And so we can call the Prince of Peace our brother. Absalom hung from a tree because of his pride. Jesus hung from a tree because of his humility. So just a couple of days ago, the new Disney Plus Star Wars series, Kenobi, came out. Uh, I'm sure some of you are buzzing about that. Uh, I've not had the chance to watch it yet. Can't wait to watch it. I've, got, um, I've not got my brother's Disney Plus account. I've got my brother's pal's brother's Disney Plus account, which I think is quite impressive. Um, anyway, I think the story of Star Wars as a whole helps us see the devastating effects when powerful people sin. So in the third Star Wars film, Revenge of the Sith, um, the young Padawan Anakin decides to go against his calling to bring peace to the galaxy, and instead joins the dark side. Um, let me quote what his mentor, Obi-Wan Kenobi, said to him. Sorry. <laughs> 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 sorry, I thought I could do this laughing, but I'm really struggling. Um, you were the chosen one. It was, <laughs> sorry. It was said you would destroy the Sith, not join them, bring balance to the Force, not leave it in darkness. Anakin, he was meant to be the one that brought peace, uh, the one that destroyed the evil Sith. And yes, if you're Star Wars nerd, he does eventually do that. But for now, instead, he joins them. And the effects on the galaxy for the following decades were devastating. Countless people, countless species were oppressed and killed by an empire that Anakin played an instrumental role in. Darkness spreads everywhere. Anakin's sin, the sin of a powerful man, causes untold misery and suffering. And in the same way, we've seen throughout 2 Samuel, David's sin corrupts all around him. And we see David feel the consequences of his sin as we read on uh, in verses 32 of chapter 18. So please do read along with me. The king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went he said, "O oh, my son Absalom... My son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Joab was told, The king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning, because on that day the troops heard it said, The king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day, as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. David has just received this shattering news that Absalom has been killed. Even though Absalom tried to kill him, David still deeply loved him. Even though he'd been a neglectful father, he still dearly loved his son. Now one thing that's interesting about Old Testament narrative is that when someone dies, there's usually just one sentence, and it would say something like this, David mourned and wept for Absalom. But here the writer devotes a good few verses to David's grief over Absalom. And I think he devotes so much time to David's grief, as there's more to it than meets the eye. He's not just grieving over losing his son, but he's grieving over his past sin and how his sin has led to Absalom's death. As one commentator puts it, it's David's guilt that inflames his grief. The prophet Nathan had said to David in chapter 12 that the sword would not leave his household. And David knew here that his sin had let the sword loose in his household. He'd seen many of his children die. And maybe David wished he had died instead of Absalom because he knew he deserved to die. Yes, David's sin of raping Bathsheba and killing her husband, it had been forgiven by God. But the legacy of his sin still had devastating consequences. It says in Deuteronomy 5, God punishes sin to the third and fourth generation. Ian said a few weeks ago, sin spreads like cancer. It wreaks havoc and destruction wherever it goes. And the commander Joab, he's a victim of this chaos. What we see in this chapter is that the tragedy of David's devastating sin leads to the triumph of Joab's ruthless pragmatism. Joab orders the death of Absalom because it was the pragmatic thing to do. Absalom was a murderous traitor. And his death would save lives because it would mean the battle would end sooner. In many ways, killing Absalom was the reasonable, pragmatic thing to do. However, is it right to go against the explicit orders of the king not to kill his son? The writer of 2 Samuel doesn't comment. But what we do see here is that the legacy of David's sin has caused a civil war with his own son Absalom. And he's ended up putting his men like Joab in an impossible position we also see the legacy of David's sin at the start and the end of chapter 19, um, as we see the tribes of Israel and Judah grumbling with each other and arguing with each other. Division was another legacy of David's sin. And it can be easy for us to forget this simple fact, sin is devastating. James 1 uh, verse 15 says, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death. Sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Even those little sins, those sinful thoughts, those little lies, can lead us down a slippery slope. There is no two ways about it. Sin is serious. And yes, if you're here today and you're a Christian, we have his grace, his grace is enough, his mercy is more. But we still need to take sin seriously and take God's holiness even more seriously. Let's by the Spirit's strength strive to look at the beauty of Christ, gaze at his beauty, so that sin's appeal will grow dimmer. Uh, one of my friends bought me this really good book um, a, f- a few months ago. It's called The Valley of Vision. Um, I think it's only about six pounds. It's basically a book full of like one-page Puritan prayers, and I honestly could not recommend it enough. Um, it really has helped me over the last year. Uh, and let me read out a bit of a Puritan prayer that I hope will help us see the beauty of Christ and gaze at it. My heart melts at the love of Jesus. My brother, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, married to me, dead for me, risen for me. He is mine and I am his, given to me as well as for me. I am never so much mine as when I am his, or so much lost to myself until lost in him. Let his love warm me, lighten my burden, be my heaven. As we think about sin, as we think about its devastating consequences, let's look to Christ's beauty and his holiness. Let's gaze at him. David's story in 2 Samuel leaves us asking, what can we do about the devastating consequences of sin? What hope do we have? What hope do we have for peace when sin is so pervasive? I only quoted a part of the passage from Deuteronomy earlier. Here's the rest of it. I will show love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And it's Jesus who kept God's commandments. He is the only one to have kept the law perfectly. And through him, he blesses a thousand generations. In this room today, in 2022, we are blessed because of Christ's obedience 2,000 years ago. And we see the legacy of Christ has even influenced our society in the West. The historian Tom Holland says that we have Christianity to thank for human rights, dignity, fairness, and the self-sacrifice which underpins things like the NHS. We see the legacy of Christ even in our society. And even more importantly, Jesus can overcome the legacy of sin. He lived a perfect life without sin, and he has a legacy of righteousness. So for those that trust in Jesus... We can be made righteous and clothed with Christ's perfect righteousness, made holy by him. The legacy of David's sin is sorrow and division. The legacy of Jesus' righteousness is joy and peace. There can be no peace while sin prevails, and it's only because of Jesus who defeated sin and its dominion over us that we can have true peace. Let's look on to chapter 19. Uh, most of chapter 19 covers kind of the peace process. David trying to bring peace back to Israel after defeating Absalom's rebellion. And we're going to look at two people that David deals with. Firstly, let's look at Shimei, uh, And I'll read verses 16 to 23 of chapter 19. Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Bahrum, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. With him were a thousand Benjamites, along with Ziba, the steward of Saul's household and his 15 sons and 20 servants. They rushed to the Jordan where the king was. They crossed at the ford to take the king's household over and to do whatever he wished. When Shammai, son of Gerah, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king and said to him, May my lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind. For I know, For I, your servant, know that I have sinned, but today I've come here as the first in the tribes of Joseph, to come down and meet my Lord the king. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, should, said, "Shouldn't Shemai be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. David replied, What does this have to, what does this have to do with you, sons of Zeruiah? What right do you have to interfere? Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Don't I know that today I'm king over Israel?" So the king said to Shemmai, "You shall not die." and the king promised him on oath. So Shimei had fought against David, and here we see him come and ask David for mercy. And at first glance, it just seems like he is humbly repenting for his rebellion. He lies prostrate in front of David, not exactly a body posture of the proud. He admits that he's sinned and has done wrong, and asks David to put it out of his mind. It looks like that he's humbly realised that he was in the wrong. This looks like genuine repentance and surely he has nothing to bring and he's just begging for mercy. But let's look at verse 20. It says, Today I have come here as the first from the tribes of Joseph to come down and meet my Lord the King. The issue here is that Shimmai says that he came first to meet David. And what he's subtly, effectively trying to say there is that he's earned the right to be forgiven. He thinks that by coming first to meet the king, he is qualified for repentance. And verse 16, have a look at that as well. It tells us that he came with a thousand Benjamites to meet David. He's bringing with him a visible reminder to David of the consequences that he would face if he doesn't forgive him. So what might have looked like humble, humble begging for mercy is not the case. There is no genuine repentance from Shammai. His heart hasn't changed. He is acting purely out of self-interest to save his own skin. And we see that today, don't we? There's not much more infuriating than a fake apology. Um, I'm a politics nerd, I love politics. uh, And the one thing that really annoys me about politicians is the phrase, I'm sorry if. Now a genuine apology, you say, I'm sorry that I did that. But I'm sorry if, you know the classic line of, I'm sorry if some people took offense to what I said. They're at it, they're not apologizing. They haven't had a change of heart. They just want to be seen to be apologizing. And the thing is, as we desire true peace, we desire lasting peace. We can't have that without genuine repentance. If we want true peace, we need to repent. And that means it's crucial that we know what genuine repentance looks like. Looks like. Looks like. So last month I was on holiday uh, and I read a book called Surprised by Jesus um, by Dane Ortland. And he makes a very helpful observation about repentance that we see in the Gospel of Matthew. Let me quote him briefly. Matthew wants us to see how life in the kingdom works. The point is that in the kingdom of God, the one thing that qualifies you is knowing that you don't qualify. And the one thing that disqualifies you is thinking that you do. The only way we can qualify for the kingdom is to know that we can't qualify by our own works. The only way that we can genuinely repent is to know that there is nothing that we can bring. All we can do is humbly ask for mercy. And that's why the Pharisees took such offence to Jesus' teaching. They thought they'd done their bit. They thought they'd done their bit to qualify for the kingdom. They thought they deserved to be there. And we might not like to admit it, but there is a Pharisee within our hearts too. We often think we can earn entry to the kingdom by our efforts. Let me quote Dan Orland again. We tend to assume that in order for God to approve of us, really approve of us, we need to qualify. And at that moment, the gospel is shifted out of the burning fireplace of our heart and into the cold and dusty attic of self-contribution. A Christian is not someone who has been enrolled in the Moral Hall of Fame. A Christian is a happily recovering Pharisee. It's only through Christ's work that we qualify, not any of our own. And let's remember that as we joyfully repent every day. Earlier in 2 Samuel, we saw David genuinely repent when confronted about his sin with Bathsheba. He didn't make excuses. He just flung himself at God's feet and asked for mercy. And here we see David point to Jesus and the mercy he has on Shimei, Even though Shimei doesn't deserve forgiveness, David forgives him. But Shimmai has not gotten away with it. His fake repentance eventually catches up on him as Solomon has him killed. In the end, his fake repentance gets him nowhere. So for us, just like David did, we can fling ourselves at God's feet and beg for mercy. And because of Jesus, we know that we bring nothing, but our repentance will be met with forgiveness. Shimmai reminds us, the gospel reminds us, that there is no true peace without genuine repentance. Now, I'm not a Harry Potter man, but I went to see the latest Fantastic Beast film a month ago. So it's like the sequel. It's a bit Dumbledore, I think. Um, anyway, at the start of the film, Dumbledore says that he needs to pass on this really important secret information to someone. Um, now, when I'm sitting there uh, in the cinema, I'm thinking, oh, it'll be some like, really important bit of strategic information or a secret about something. Um, But actually, what Dumbledore wanted to pass on was advice. And that advice was this. Do what is right, not what is easy. Simple yet profound. Do what is right, not what is easy. And David, in this peace process, deals with a man called Mephibosheth. And David is faced with the choice of doing what is easy or what is right. Let's read verses 24 to 29 of chapter 19. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his moustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? He said, My lord the king, since I your servant am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and will ride on it so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me. And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. My lord the king is like an angel of God, so do whatever you wish. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? The king said to him, why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the land. So David thought, and understandably so, that Mephibosheth had abandoned him. But actually, Ziba had betrayed Mephibosheth. And a little reminder about who Mephibosheth is, he is Saul's grandson. Um, And in verse 28, he says that he's so grateful for the mercy that David showed him by giving him a seat at the king's table. And Mephibosheth humbly says, what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? He has come humbly to David and asked for his favour. So how does David treat him? And David seems very happy to accommodate him. He says, why say more? And then he orders the land to be divided between Ziba and Mephibosheth. But there's an issue here, though. Where's the justice? Why does Ziba get half the land when he's the one that betrayed Mephibosheth and David? And it's because David takes the easy way out. It's easy for him politically to let Ziba off. Dealing with Ziba's injustice could have caused David's problems. So Mephibosheth, who hasn't done anything wrong, has to watch Ziba get away with it. David here, he doesn't protect the innocent and the oppressed. Instead, he protects the guilty and the oppressor. He does what is easy, not what is right. There is no justice here, so there can be no genuine peace. And this serves as a warning for us too. We must do what is right, not what is easy. So one trivial example of this that really winds me up is in football, when you might see it, when two footballers seem to be scrapping with each other, uh, and the referee hasn't really seen what's going on. But nevertheless, he strides over and gives both players a yellow card, even though he has no idea whether one deserves a red card or nothing. He just doesn't have a clue what's going on, but he strides over and gives two yellow cards because it's the least controversial thing to do. The referees often do what is easy, not what is right. And it's easy for us just to flippantly say in situations in life, oh, both sides are right, or both sides are a bit wrong, and not really think about it. We need to avoid the temptation to lazily cast the blame. And we need to examine ourselves as well. As not always, but sometimes when we are wronged, we are also in the wrong too, even if that's to a lesser degree. Justice is hard work, and we need to be diligent if we're to pursue it. And in everyday life as well, it's just hard to do what's right. It can be easy not to speak up when your pals are making misogynistic jokes. It can be easy to join in the gossip about someone at work. It can be easy to pretend that you've not read that message from someone who wants to ask you for a favour. We often do what is easy, not what is right. And what's hard for us is the world gives us really terrible advice. It, It tells us to follow our hearts our hearts, our desires, they tell us to do what's easy. Our hearts are always telling us take the easy way out. Don't do what's right. David couldn't bring true peace to his kingdom because he couldn't bring justice. And again, that's no wonder that we see grumbling between the tribes of Judah and Israel. There can be no peace without justice. And we need peace. Not peace as in a lack of war, but we need the peace that comes only with being united to Jesus that peace between us and God when our sins are forgiven, that peace in our heart knowing that we are fully loved and truly known by King Jesus who always does what is right, who is always working for our good and his glory. And while here David didn't do what was right, we worship a king who always does what is right. Jesus was not doing what was easy when he went to the cross. He died the most humiliating and painful death. He died to defeat injustice, and now he reigns as the just king who always does what is right. And we can be at peace because we can trust our just king. Earlier we saw the ways that our culture is desperate for peace. And if you're here today, whether you're Christian or not, we all desire true peace, don't we? And our passage today has made something clear. True peace is hard to come by. Two Samuel and our world today seem to cry out together, who can bring us true peace? And it is Jesus that brings us peace. He is the one who died to bring peace. He is the one who deals with the legacy of our sin. He is the one who brings peace by forgiving those who genuinely repent. And he is the one who is perfectly just. No wonder the Bible calls him the Prince of Peace. The longing of our day and the mess of this passage ultimately point to one reality about peace there can be no true peace without jesus let me pray for us father you are so good jesus you are so holy father may we gaze at you more every single day jesus may we see more and more that you are the prince of peace that you are the one that brings justice brings forgiveness And Father, help us to examine our own hearts as we go into the next week. Father, help us to genuinely repent, to humbly repent of where we fall short. But Father, we thank you that your son Jesus, he did not fall short. And that through him, we can have forgiveness, we can have true peace, we can have life to the full. And we can't wait for that day when we're in the new creation, worshipping you forever, in a place of no more tears, and no more suffering. Father, we can't wait for that day. Father, you are good and we give you all the glory. Uh, In your son's precious name, amen.